It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. I bet there are a bunch of scared people out there after the crazy week. Let's talk about not just the crazy week, the crazy year 2008 has been so far for us. I'm recording this on the 18th of January, which is Friday, so I have not had a chance. Supposedly, I saw when I went out there and looked at the news wires this morning, um, the president is going to put out a proposal, so I won't be able to give you my feedback on that for another week, but it has been wild out there. If you're talking about the cycle of market emotions, I think we've run the whole gamut here um, this week because, you know, we started out the beginning of the week with IBM coming out with some pretty good news. And then, man, have things gotten bad very quickly, and and we've seen a huge pullback out there in the financial stocks. And um, we're going to be talking about that. And I've actually got a great article that's hopefully going to shed some light, give you a little bit of hope, a glimmer of sunshine in all this craziness. I am the host of The Money Guy Show. Brian Preston. By day, I am a certified public accountant and a certified financial planner that is doing fee-only financial planning down here on the south side of Atlanta. And you've joined us here on the Money Guy Show. We are going to go beyond common sense. And man, are we going beyond common sense today because we've got to talk about a lot of these things because right now, you guys are probably looking for some type of beacon of hope to make you feel better about this crazy thing we called we call investing. So let's let's talk about this. I did write an article back in 2002. I wrote it back in October 2002, and it's titled "What You Should Know in an Uncertain Market." Um, so I think it's kind of the the timeliness of this is very very good because what was October of 2002? You have to take yourself back in time and remember that the markets were horrible, really starting in March of 2000 all of 2001 and then 2002 it was just bad out there i mean so you can you can imagine after 3 years of bad years in the financial markets people were probably feeling pretty disgusted about the time of october of 2002 um before i go in and i'm actually going to take some ex- excerpts from this um some portions maybe I, maybe i shouldn't use words i can't pronounce we're going to take some portions of this article i wrote back then but i do want to give you all the website it's uh, moneyguy.net you can also write the show that's brian b r i a n at moneyguy.net and we're going to talk about it at the end of the show because um, i like to you know, hit you guys with all the facts, figures, and then we talk about personal stuff and show updates at the end of the show so that people who don't want to tune in for that that are here for the meat um, uh, of the episode can just tune in, get the information they need, and get out. But um, go to moneyguy.net if you want to check out our, our show show notes, um, check out our website, and then you can also register on the left-hand side of the website and type in your email address. And what happens is every time I update show notes, it emails it directly to you so you can get all the copies of the links and everything else. But back in October October 3rd of 2002, which was a Thursday back then, what you should know in an uncertain market. And this is what I wrote back then, and I think it's very, very timely because this is a scary time right now. I mean, we have dropped significantly in the first few weeks of January. And I've, to- I've been telling you guys, you know, I, and I, I've made a lot of adjustments in client assets back in third or fourth quarter of 2007, but if you'd have told me on September 30th of 2007 that within really five months, four to five months, we were going to have a dramatic pullback where we're already down, you know, over 6% for year to date, 
I would have told you no way. You know, I've probably changed the allocations even more than I did. But um, it, it has been significant out there, and it's kind of been shocking because it's impacted a lot of the funds that historically have done very well during shaky markets. Let's talk about, you know, a stock fund that I always talk about because, you know, I'm a big fan of using exchange-traded funds and index funds, but I always give an exception. And I say if you can get into managers like Dodge and Cox stock, man, do it because they, they have such a great historical return where they significantly, usually and historically, beat the index returns of the S&P 500. Well, they've gotten in trouble here recently because, let's face it, what is Dodge and Cox stock fund? It is a large cap value mutual fund where it buys, you remember what large cap is, as I talked about in last week's show on asset allocation, large cap stocks are companies in the United States that are greater than $12 billion in market capitalization. So Dodge and Cox stock goes out there and buys the biggest of biggest large cap value stocks. So what's large cap value? Large cap value, a lot of times, is your financial institutions because historically they have price-to-earnings ratios that are significantly lower than like your growth industries. So these guys are considered the conservative ones. They're the square uh, squares of the financial industry. Well, what have they done? You've got Dodge and Cox stock, which one of their biggest holdings is like Wachovia Bank and some of the other financial co- holding companies out there. And then we've got companies like Citigroup that have come out and they've announced, hey, we got greedy. We went out there and put ourselves and packaged some products that were mortgage-based, subprime-based, whatever you want to you call them, but they got in trouble. They took too much risk, got too greedy, and now they're getting it knocked off. And that's why you see, while the stock market's down 6%, you see Dodge and Cox stock and other conservative funds, funds that traditionally and historically have done very well during down markets, are getting hammered by being down over 8% during the same period. I mean, that is rough to be down 8%, and we're only in the third week of a month. That's just crazy. And um, I I wouldn't, if I was a Dodge and Cox stock owner, which I am for, for me and several clients, I would not be looking for the exits because let's talk about financial stocks. Now, I recognize that a lot of them are probably going to be cutting their dividends because right now, if you go to Yahoo or Morningstar and look at the yield that these financial funds are putting out, and you'll see something that says that they're paying between 65 to 7.5% on dividends. Who needs a CD if you had a stock that's paying 65 to 7% just on the dividend, plus you have the potential for capital appreciation if the stock price goes up. But as I mentioned, Probably not going to keep all those dividends, so I wouldn't go in thinking these things are super safe that you can get this six and a half to seven and a half percent dividend. But um, because as we saw, Citigroup has announced they're slashing their dividends, I believe, by like forty-one percent. Still going to make these things still have healthy dividend ratios, but um, they got caught out there with this whole investing in investments they should have never had their hands in, and that's why it's impacting a traditional and historical. Um, conservative investment class, which is your financial institutions. But I do think it's go, we're going to weather the storm because let's talk about common sense. I always try to interject common sense because there's enough financial advisors out there that are going to try to spin your head, make these issues so complicated you don't know what's going on. From a common sense standpoint, think about this. Citigroup has changed their leadership as well as some of the other financial institutions. Um, and 
the new CEOs that are coming in, if you were in their shoes, what would the first thing you do? You would do the first thing I would do as a CEO is I would blame everything I could on my predecessor. I would go out there, and if we've got any risky investments that we don't, we should never have had our place in. We, I would be dumping those out right now. I'd go ahead and come clean, take my bath all at once, put it on my predecessor, and then that way you have a fresh start so we can found a, find a foundation to kind of build the company back up on. Because let's face it, what are these, uh, a lot of the CEOs, their, their compensation packages are also driven by how well the stock performs. So it doesn't hurt them also to go ahead and take that big cleansing bath right now. So I do truly believe that we probably are going to find a floor with these financial stocks very soon. I hope so anyway, because you know that's what I think is going on out there, that if I had any bit of bad news, um, or if I had anything hidden on my balance sheets, if I was an executive at a financial institution, now would be the time to take the bath on it. Because let's face it, even if you had the, the, the cleanest and healthiest balance sheet out there in this industry, just because you are a bank or financial institution, you're still getting hammered on your stock price right now. Just because you are, you know, related to all these other financial institutions, you're kind of grouped in with them, and you're being punished as well. So, think about that. Now, let's talk about. So, I guess the point I'm getting at is that I know a lot of people are probably very nervous, but in the grand scheme of things, this is a hiccup. We got some people taking greed to the wrong level, and now they're getting having to pay the price, and unfortunately, it's drawing a lot of us into it as well. Um, but don't let that be the thing that, that makes you say, I'm never going to invest in the stock market. I'm never going to invest in equities because that's what gets a lot of financial investors in trouble is that they get out there and they try to start timing. They get out there and, they, and they, you need to think about this from the Warren Buffett type mentality where you've got to be a contrarian. When, you, when other people are scared is when you get excited, when you get optimistic about opportunities. Now, I don't know if we found our floor yet, and I don't know if this is the time to be running for the entrance while everybody else is headed for the exits, but I will tell you that this will recover. Never have uh, um, a, a, any type of doubt that we're in a brand new paradigm where this is never going to occur. It's not possible, because if that is going to occur, first you've got to think about this. The government has the ability to change the rule book at any point in time. Never underestimate and never underestimate what the government can do by just, you know, doing stimulus. Why, by, you know, they're going to cut interest rates, by cutting taxes. And I'm, by, I'm going to tell you some things that concern me about the cutting of the interest rates, but you, it will, they will see all, you will see these tools quickly come to action. So never underestimate the power of the government to change the rule book. Also, don't underestimate our ability as a country... We're so efficient, and productivity through innovation has always been an incredible thing. So I'm not so worried about this market downturn. Like I said, I think there's some greed. They got a hold of some financial institutions, and now they're getting you know their, their limbs chopped off a little bit, but it will come back. We will be fine from this, so keep your focus and keep your head about it. But I do want to talk about this article I did back in 2002 to give you some light on this whole thing, to give you a glimmer of hope. Um, this is what I wrote back then. I said, I recognize a pattern in the questions I receive from prospects and new clients. Many are uneasy with the ups and downs of the stock markets. I've decided to address two of the main questions that I've received in recent months. Hopefully by addressing these issues, I can help an investor feel better that the market's future prospects as well as save them a few nights of sleeps, sleepless unrest. Now, this is remember, this is not last week that I wrote this. I wrote this back in October of 2002, right before we had the huge 
recovery of 2003, 2004, 2005, and 2006, and even a good 2007, even though fourth quarter was not good. So I went on to say, why not stay in cash until the market recovers? I had an email just last week from a listener who asked me the same thing. Why not stay in cash until the market recovers? When I receive this question, I understand that the individual has been burned with their previous investment decisions, and they are nervous that the stock markets are in a downward spiral from which they may never recover. However, we know that historically, cash does not protect an investor from inflation. It is not an effective, an effective long-term investment. Notice the term long-term investment. If the goal for your investment capital will not allow you to keep the money fully invested for five to seven years, do not invest in the markets. The problem with sitting on the sidelines until a stock market recovers is that no one truly knows when the market will recover. Just as it's nearly impossible to predict when the markets are going to go down, so too is near nearly impossible to predict increases in the markets. Two years ago, did anyone know the severity of the bloodletting we have seen recently? This is not a shred of, there is not a shred of academic research that says market timing is effective. What is known is that if you are not invested when the market recovers, you will most likely miss the biggest gains. On average, markets rise by 9.8% one month after they reach the bottom of a bear market. Man, if I could go back in time, because I wrote this in October of 2002. Guess when they have gone back and reinstated and said, when did we reach the end of our downward cycle back in this 2000, 2001, 2002? We can can now point on the calendar and say the recovery and going into that bull market that we had from 2003, 4, 5, 6, and 7 started somewhere between October and November of 2002. If only I would have known then, I could have made us all rich by just loading up on, on stocks. But that's not what we do. Remember, we diversify, but it still is just very entertaining to go back into the darkest of times back in October of 2002 and see what I was feeling and what I wrote because of what I was getting calls from clients and others that were concerned. But remember, that stat that I just read out is not something you should take lightly. On average, the markets rise by 9.8% one month after they reach the bottom of a bear market. Now remember, this is a stat from 2002. So let's see how this rolls into what happened in 2003. Because I went on and said, furthermore, if you expand the time period to one year from the bottom of a bear market, the stock markets historically rise 26.2% over the subsequent 12 months. Now, does anybody remember what happened in 2003? The market went up 28%. That ties pretty closely to that 26.2% that I quoted in October of 2002. When we come back from the commercial break, I'm going to wrap up this article. I'm going to talk about America and the growing credit concerns we have with our debts out there, as well as this crazy little element that we all love and like to look at, which is called gold. So hang with me. I'm the host for The Money Guy Show, Brian Preston. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job, educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. We're back for the second segment of the Money Guy Show. And as you know, just recap them if, just, if you're just now joining us. Um, we talked about in the first segment how this crazy uncertain market that we've had for the, la- the first few weeks of 2008 and how we're probably feeling like, because we always do it, it's human nature whenever we come into these crazy times that we feel like this is the first time this has ever happened. Or what if this is a new era where the market's never going to be able to recover? What if we've entered a new period where inflation or concerns or, or the global marketplace is going to make it where America can't compete and we're in trouble? You see these things time and time again. I have all kind of charts and, and posters and things. I think I used it as a prop a few weeks ago. Let me pull this thing out. You know, I've got this huge thing I got at a, you know, a conference a few years ago, and it has the stock market history since 1928. And you can look at this thing, and you can see all the times during history that we thought we were in new paradigms, where we thought things were just going to be just dreadful forever. I mean, we've got the Depression of the 20s. You know, we've got assassinations of presidents. We've got terroristic activity. I mean, we have run the the, the whole gamut of what things can happen to you in the world, and we've always thought that the markets would never recover. That's not what's going to happen, because remember, the government can change the rule book at any point in time. Plus, you have the great innovation of what this country creates, and we're still the global foundation for the world. I mean, a lot of people look at us to see what we're going to do. There's a reason you know, as I talked about in last week's show, real estate. We're, we're expecting a real estate, you know, kind of expansion globally because a lot of governments are looking at what we've done with our real estate marketplace. Now, sure, things are pretty bad right now. It's kind of toxic to even talk about real estate. But, you know, there's a lot to be learned. A lot of people built wealth off of that real estate and financial independence. And that's, there's, there's opportunities to be learned. And that's why you see worldwide governments that are trying to copy some of the things we did. Now, they're probably learning from a few of our mistakes as well. But I talked about a great stat that I wrote back in October of 2002. I, I wrote an article for a newspaper back then. Um, you know, I was just, a, they let me put in a column from time to time whenever I had insight that I wanted to put on what was going on, on with the financial markets. And I wrote this back on Thursday of October 3rd of 2002. And I was talking about what you should know in an uncertain market. That's actually what I titled the, the piece. And I, I think the stats I read right before we went to commercial break should not be taken lightly. Because I'm going to read them one more time. It's, I wrote, on average, markets rise 9.8% one month after they reach the bottom of a bear market. Furthermore, if you expand the time period to one year from the bottom of a bear market, the stock markets historically rise 26.2% over the subsequent 12 months. And as I just mentioned, the stock market of 2003 made over 28%. The S&P 500 made over 28%. How well does that tie? Because this data I gave you was from October of 2002, and here we go. If I just had a crystal ball to go look into 2003, how amazing it is that history does repeat itself. And when we thought we were in the darkest times, I would not have written this article unless I was kind of nervous myself. You know, I'm getting all these phone calls from clients, concerned, asking me if we should be in cash. You know, and I get these same emails this past week. It's like deja vu all over again. So it's kind of interesting to go in when you're in the darkest times and now go back in history and look at what happened in the subsequent year. And we saw how good things were, and it proves that this stuff is right. So it's very interesting 
to kind of look a, look at this, you know, because I even wrote, I said, I realize this is of little comfort to an investor that has watched their nest egg dwindle to half the value of two years ago. But much of the volatility could have been caused by investing in inappropriate investments for an investor's age and risk tolerance. I will address these issues for the next question. For an investor with a long-term investment horizon, you must remember that the goal of investing is to buy low and sell high. And things sure do seem pretty low right now. Man, that feels good to read an article that you wrote back in 2002 and then to see something like that. If only I had been loaded back then so I could have really been um, rocking it back then. Uh, the second question I had is, what can I do to stop losing so much money with my investments? And I went on to say, many investors have been victims of their own good luck. The stock market from July, from 1995 to March of 2000 was an anomaly and very profitable for individuals that shunned traditional advice and loaded up on big company names and laughed in the face of diversification. The market had such a winning streak that some investment advisors lost their heads, throwing reasonable caution aside for the opportunity to make a quick and easy money for their clients. Now we have seen what happens when this irrational exuberance, and I'm doing the um, air quotes as I say irrational exuberance, is replaced by an equally irrational pessimism. Diversification is imperative for an investor to weather the volatile stock markets. The saddest thing for me as a planner and investment advisor is when I meet a retired prospect um, client to review what is left of their investment portfolio, and I see the same thing over and over again. 70% large company growth stock and 30% corporate bonds. This is not adequate diversification. The portion of an investment allocation that is invested in bonds needs to be duly diversified into both non-corporate bond and across different maturity dates. Any well-designed allocation model should also include real estate and hedged equity funds. Each of these investment options has handily beaten the S&P 500's disappointment, annual, disappointing annualized loss of 5.2% for the last three years. Furthermore, diversifying also includes spreading your investments to different types of stock. Many probably do not realize that there are mutual funds invested in mid-sized American companies that have actually made money and returned 25% and 26% for both 2000 and 2001, respectively. By combining these different asset classes into a completely diversified portfolio that takes into account your long-term goals and retirement plans, an investor can avoid much of the volatility that we have recently endured. Wow, now I haven't even read this thing in a long time. And i got to tell you, when I, when I even was preparing for the show... I just basically knew I had that stat in there about the recovery of the first year and wanted to get that to you. And I haven't really read what I wrote since, you know, I did this back in 2002, but it's kind of it's kind of funny, you know, it, I kind of my hair stood up on my arm a little bit because I remember just last week we were talking about how I feel like the average investor is still stuck in 1987 and just buying stocks, bonds and cash. And here I go back and read something that I wrote back in 2002. October of 2002, which was the darkest days of a bad period from 2000 to 2002. And I see I said the exact same thing back then. That's consistency, guys. And, and it just shows me that we were right then and we're right now, and this is going to pay off. You just got to recognize that you if, you, if you've been pained, meaning if your portfolio is, is enduring all of the volatility in the market, you're not diversified properly. Because I had some client meetings this week, and sure, things are rough out there right now. And when the market was down 6%, a little over 6%, if you're doing this right, hopefully you're only, you know, 
getting somewhere between 30 to, to 50, 60 percent of that downside. So if the market's down 10, hopefully you're only going to lose 3 to 6 percent, 3 to 5 percent, depending upon your age. And I say 6 percent for that person that's young, and they should be really out there in some pretty aggressive stuff. But for the older people out there that are getting close to retirement in a few years, you need to watch your risk. You need to be fully diversified. You need to be using some of these long, short mutual funds that we talked about last week. Now, I do want to talk about real briefly, I had somebody ask me, why don't I talk about the bear funds? Because I think they went out there and played on the Morningstar website because I talked about those long, short investments that seek to make money. Um, a lot of those funds, depending upon what their investment objective is, they seek to make money when the market's volatile just like this and even going down. They said, why don't you just buy the bear funds that are that are basically investment funds that are shorting stocks that they think are overvalued? And does everybody know what shorting stocks means? It means selling shares that you don't truly own. You borrow them from somebody who does own them. You sell them with the anticipation that you're going to buy that stock price, that that share back, at a lower price. So if you bought, if you shorted the stock at 50, but then it goes down to $40 a share, you made $10 a profit when you bought it back at 40. So there's, there's bear funds out there. If you go look at the bearish investment funds that, that really do well when markets get beat up, just like we've seen so far in 2008, I don't recommend those funds. And there's a reason. I like managers that can flip a switch, meaning that when they think things are bad, that they can go out there and take advantage of the inefficiencies of the market and make money even when the market's down. They can short. But when they think things are good, like when October of 2002 comes around and they say, wait a minute, it looks like inventory numbers are really low, but all of a sudden demand is really high. I bet we're going to be at the beginning of something that could last for a number of years and be good, a new bull market. So when that comes about, I want that manager to be able to flip that switch, be able to go, you know what, it'd be crazy to be shorting stocks right now because we're about to go up. Uh, so I want that manager to be able to flip that switch and be able to make money even when the market's going up. So that's why I kind of like these absolute return strategies that I talked about last week's show. And you can go download last week's show if you missed. If you're a brand new listener, welcome to the Money Guy Show. You can go download my previous episodes by going to moneyguy.net or iTunes. I know has them out there as well as Zoom and some of the other places you can download the Money Guy Show. So go check that out. And, and I think you'll see that, that I'm right about that, that you, you could, there's opportunities out there that you could have turned it around. So I guess the short of what I'm trying to say is don't let this, this, this volatility that's going on right now be the thing that takes you off track. Because this is nothing new. This happens all the time in history. We've all been there, done that. It's just our memories are very short when it comes to getting in these emotional situations where the stock market starts to get a little shaky. So hang in there. Now, I will tell you something that does scare me, and I want to talk about it today because I think it's that important. I even got a call um, from one of the, the national financial TV show channels out there. I'll go ahead and tell you now because I, I, I I've been in discussion again with Fox Business Network. Now, I'm not going to go into too much more discussion about it because, you know, working with TV channels is very, um, it's interesting because you get excited to go on TV. I've been slated to be go on there, and then, you know, you can get bumped at any point in time because if any big news comes out that day or somebody who's a bigger financial person than you are, you can get bumped at any point in time. So I've been dealing with that recently, but... Um, I'm pretty confident that I will be on the network within the, the next few weeks, and, and I'll give you some feedback on that. But I did get asked by Fox Business to look at a Financial Times article that was titled, U.S. AAA Credit Rating 
under threat. Um, and, and this was put out there, and it was it's kind of concerning. And it is something that I want you to think about because I know many of y'all have heard me talk about this in previous shows because I have a little bitterness to me. You know, y'all have heard me talk about Social Security and my, my, my fight and my issue with Social Security is it doesn't let you build wealth. I think many of y'all know I've talked about I lost my father back in 2000 to leukemia. And um, he was only 55 years of age. Very young. Should not. Nobody should lose their father when they're 55 years of age. But the thing that upset me is that my father had paid into the system his entire life. And when you pass away after paying in your entire life, the only thank you that the government sends you, you don't get to stay in the Lincoln bedroom or anything else like the big political fat cats might get to do. You All you get to do is you get a $255 check from the federal government that says thank you. Now, if you have six figures that you contributed to the, the, the Social Security and Medicare, it's just basically a contribution to the federal government. Now, sure, I know a few of you are like, wait a minute, Brian, your mother gets that benefit. Well, not really. If your mother and your father made about the same amount of money, because remember, my mom was a school teacher, my dad was a salesman, um, they didn't make. They made about the same amount of money. I'll go ahead and tell you. You know, they, you know, school teachers aren't known for making a great deal of money in the industry. My dad was in wasn't known for making a great deal of money either. So, my mom's going to get her own social security. She's not getting my father. So, I, that's the thing that bothers me. And I know this happens to um, a lot of other people out there, where instead of allowing uh, a building of an asset, a legacy that can be passed down to generations. You know, like your 401k if you pass away, you know, or your IRAs, they go on to your relatives. That's not that way with Social Security. You die young, you just made a contribution to the government. Plus, I just don't like the fact that it's a pyramid scheme. And what I mean by that, and, and I'm going to get into kind of the details. Um, well, let me let me get into the article because I'm kind of I'm kind of talking out of turn and telling you um, before the article. The article goes into it says. The U.S. is at risk of losing its top-notch AAA credit rating within a decade unless it takes radical action to curb soaring health care and Social Security spending, the Moody's Credit Reporting Agency said yesterday. Now, this article came out on January 11th, so it's still pretty timely. It says, The warning over the future of the AAA rating granting the U.S. government granted to U.S. government debt since it was first assessed in 1917 reflects growing concerns over the country's ability to retain its financial and economic supremacy. Um, it said in its annual report on the U.S., Moody's signaled increased concern that rapid rises in Medicare and Medicaid that the government-funded health care programs for the old and poor would cause major fiscal pressures in years to come. The combination of medical programs and Social Security is the most important threat to the AAA rating over the long term. Medicare and Medicaid spending has risen sharply over the past few decades and now accounts for about 45% of the total federal spending, up from 25% in 1975, and has long been a source of concern. So we're running out of time before I have to go to my next commercial break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about how this article fits into my discussions on Social Security and Medicare and the growing spending that's going on over there, that sucking sound in Washington. So stay with me. I'm the host for the Money Guy Show, Brian Preston. We'll be right back after this break. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like 
the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job, educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. Last segment of the Money Guy Show, trying to be the beacon of light in this crazy economic time that we're facing out there right now in the United States. I will tell you that we are in darkness, and I'm trying to be the one that's bringing that light to keep you optimistic, to talk to you about what you can do long term. But I am having to talk about something that does bring a little bit of darkness to the financial markets. That is, Moody's came out just recently and said that if the the U.S. doesn't get their act together when it comes to the Big debts, and when I talk about big debts and obligations, I'm talking about Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, we might be in trouble. So I want to talk about, and I did some thoughts that I put together for Fox Business on this topic, and I want to kind of share those with you. First, I need to give you all a little bit of um, of what, what brought this about by Moody's. Why are they saying these type of things? Because it's not this stock market that scares me. It's this type of stuff that does scare me. Because this is the type of rain cloud over the horizon that we need to be careful of. Because think about this. In 2017, that's less than 10 years. Because, hello, we're in 2008 right now. But by 2017, because of the graying of America, meaning we have all the baby boomers that are about to retire, Social Security will begin to pay more in benefits than it takes out of the current workers. And I need to give you a little bit of a history lesson on this. For those not in the know, Social Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system. Now, what does that mean, pay-as-you-go system? What that means is there's no money sitting in a trust or bank account. That was stopped back in 1965. President Lyndon Johnson, as part of the Great Society program, Social Security was changed to withdraw funds from the independent trust and put into the general fund for additional congressional revenue. And um, that's the part, that's kind of the line in the sand, the fork in the road where We've changed. Now, 1965 was not that long ago. So you can see this thing has gotten off track very quickly. I also want to go on to state that that same year, 1965, President Johnson also can be thanked for, he started the Social Security Act of 1965, which created Medicare. Um, so that's where we started this whole Medicare process, too. Um, the dramatic change in policy effectively, and this is what I was talking about, turned Social Security into a pyramid scheme where current young workers pay the benefit of retired individuals. And this would be great. This has worked great in the past, but now with the graying of our country, we'll soon have more retirees than workers. This is a common sense issue. I don't know why nobody back in 1965 was looking at where we were going. I guess they thought we, we were always just going to have big families of six or seven individuals. But what happened during this time, too? It's kind of unique. If you go back and look at history, you have to recognize that, you know, this country was kind of an agriculture-type country. And my father comes from an agriculture-type family where they were dairy farmers. So my, he, he comes from, you know, he has quite a few brothers um, and a sister. He has five brothers and a sister. 
And so, you know, it was a big family because they needed help around the farms. Well, now that we've kind of gone more modern where service industries are becoming what is growing out there in our economic activity, you don't see many people needing six or seven kids anymore. Sure, you see them from time to time, but most people are now one or two children families. And so this is this is cause where we have a lot of people retiring because they were part of that agricultural society of the past. And now we don't have as many workers out there. So that's going to push more and more down on the younger people. Um, it also talk, let's talk about the healthcare side. With the changes of our demographics, we also have seen a dramatic change in healthcare. Um, you know, and, and, I, and this was talked about in the article. It says that the budget that is now devoted to Medicare is 45%. Whereas back in 1975, it was only 25%. That's a rapid, rapid increase. But yet somehow we still see on both sides, because remember, this is not a political show. I'm definitely a financial show. I don't, I'm not impressed with either party up there in Washington, to be honest with you. And, but they are going to town on the spending and promising. I mean, it's just last year we had an increase in benefits. We had the, the prescription drug stuff. Now, I'll give you a little anecdotal information. I have, a, I have an assistant that works for me. Priscilla is a gift from God. She kind of came upon me. Um, she had retired from a big company. Um, she was like a, you know, an executive's like a, a, a administrative assistant, and she's way overqualified to be working with an upstart like me when she came on board. But she came to me um, through a, a relative. She came to me actually to talk about some issues. And then while we were in discussion, this is why I th- say things don't just happen by chance. I really do sometimes believe there's a big plan out there. But she came to talk to me about some issues. And then before you know it, we got to somehow into a discussion that she was looking for a job, a part-time job. So she started working for me two days, three days, four days. I'm trying to convince her to go five. She'll never do it. But I love the, the time she's here. But Priscilla is old enough or I should say young enough, because Priscilla has more energy than me and everybody else in my office, but she's young enough that she qualifies for Medicare. And, and what is amazing to me is last year when we had the prescription drug plan that came out, her private insurance company from the big company she retired from provide you know all that type of benefit for her. Well, as soon as the government comes out and says that now they are going to provide that you know, her private company quit providing prescription drug coverage. Now Medicare picks that up, and somehow through the Medicare plan, her, her, you know, her cost goes down significantly, and she gets additional benefits, including a free gym membership at the local gym. And I'm just wondering who of all of us young people is going to pay for all this stuff because it just bothers me when I had a private company out here paying for all this stuff, and now we as the country are going to pay for this, and we've got more and more people retiring, and an older, you know, as the country gets older, it's just a few of us just paying for this. It scares me, and this is not, a, like I said, a, 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 a political discussion, whether it's a Republican or Democrat thing. This is just who's going to pay for everything. So th- that's just anecdotal information that I've seen from my own personal experience. It says, um, and then even this year, the, the premiums haven't gone up much. You know, I saw an article that said that we should be thankful that premiums have not gone up that much in 2007 for insurance. Do you know what not much is in 2007 dollars? Because it's the lowest increase since we've had since 1999, um, 6.1%. That's still well above inflation. So there's a lot of information out there that that we have some concerns about these big obligations that are coming from Washington with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and nobody's really willing to talk about it. And you know what's going to happen if they don't talk about it? And this is what I also want to talk about is that we are going to have generational war. We truly are. And because 
The, the people that are in power are not doing what they need to do. We are going to have generational warfare. And, you know, and, and don't believe me, I always try to give you facts. In 2005, there was an article in the Boston Globe that hinted at this concern with a memo that was leaked to the media from President Bush that, to, that, to, that went to his aides that stated, it said, it is their responsibility. This is what, pre, the President, what President Bush passed out there in a memo to his aides. It said, it is their responsibility and duty to ensure Ensure, I tell you, that they do not create an intergenerational conflict. This was back when President Bush was proposing, you know, those those private investment accounts. So there is an article out there that talks about how there was concern from the government that we are going to have this generational warfare because young people are going to eventually get tired of nobody, you know, of the of the older generations not doing the changes that need to occur. And just everybody else sitting on their hands waiting for us to kind of come and pay for everything. And it is a frustrating thing because I know we have a lot of young listeners out there. That's why I tell you to be active. Know the issues. Know what's going on out there. Because I listened to, you know, and I talked about this a few weeks ago on a previous show. The 2008 presidential candidates really aren't willing to t- get their hands dirty and talk about what the fixes are to address Social Security and Medicare. It's business as usual. You know, you got one party that wants to increase payroll taxes. And then you got another that's talking about, you know, it you know, private accounts. And and we know right now there's no silver bullet. Either side, neither one of them has a silver bullet. It's going to be a combination of all these things. Let's face it, we're going to have to do a combination of probably increasing taxes, lifting the payroll issue, uh, payroll tax um, on how far the, the compensation goes. We're going to have to cut benefits, and we're going to have to increase retirement age. Social Security is not going to be the slush fund that it's been in the past. And I'm sorry, I don't like this any more than anybody else, but I'm just trying to be honest about what's going on out there. And I had some people, you know, I think a lot of people think if we just lifted the Social Security tax off completely, and just if you made a million dollars, um, you would just pay the you know the the full Social Security tax like you do with Medicare, and they think that would be the fix. That's not really the fix either. That would only increase benefits for an additional. That would increase enough money that we that would secure Social Security for another six to eight years at most. So that's not the answer either. We're going to have to do some dramatic changes to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid if this is going to make it in the long term. And I know this stuff is scary, but you've got to think about these things. But I don't want you to think that I'm negative on the United States. I think you all know I'm, I'm probably one of the biggest optimists out there. Um, I love what I do for a living. I love helping people with their finances. That's where this podcast came from. And so I'd say never count out what's going on in the United States. We, I mean, our innovation, our optimism has always been the thing that's brought us back. But I do think Medicare needs to be transformed into more of a catastrophic type coverage. They need to, you know, gradually raise deductibles. Instead of making this thing where everybody gets their insurance and their coverage, it needs to be more catastrophic coverage. Um, and then we need to have an open, honest discussion about the state of Social Security because this, you know, he said, she, she said, you know, that we have between the political parties and no solutions ever coming is just a disaster, and it will catch up to us. And now it's going to catch up sooner than later since we have less than 10 years. So you can see we have a lot of things going on out there that we need to pay attention to. This market is a hiccup. Sure, it might be impacting your monthly financial statements, but it's this stuff that's coming 10 years down the road. That's what you need to keep your eyes on because that's the big stuff that's out there. Now, I've had some people write me and they say, you never talk about gold. What does this um, $900 gold really mean? Um, I wanted to just kind of give you some thoughts on that. Um, Gold, let's see if I've got it in here. Gold is one of those things... 
here it is, here it is. Gold is one of those things where I think there's two, two, there's two misunderstandings. Um, and I got this from What Can We Infer from $900 Gold by Paul Hoffmeister. There's um, one of my fellow financial advisors, Russ, at another firm, um, sent this article over to me. I thought it was great. He says there's two misconceptions about gold, that gold prices are soaring as a result of increased demand from overseas, and number two, that gold should be adjusted for inflation. First, got to think about gold as unique. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, its value is continuously validated by its futures market. Um, the assertion that you know, demand from overseas has caused a dramatic rise in gold prices has no basis in fact, according to this article. This is more ris- realistically, the changes in the price of gold that we're witnessing are itself a consequence of the changes in value of the currency in which gold is denominated, not the changing value of gold itself. And what it's talking about is how really, if you think about the reason gold is at $900 right now is because the dollar is so weak. Gold is, a, is I always say, an indicator of inflation, and we're going to get into that in just a few seconds. But it says, what goes on to say in this article, it says, as a result, the price of gold from $350 in 2003 to nearly $900 today indicates that the dollar has lost no more than 60% of its value. In other words, where you $1 bought you one three hundred and fifth. 50th of an ounce of gold in 2003, and now buys you one nine hundredth of an ounce. The dollar is truly buying less these days, and many consumers hit by rising fuel and food costs would agree. And I will tell you from my own personal experience, we went to Italy back in 2002, um, and, and, you know, dollar was worth a good bit more than the euro at that time. But now if you go look at what the euro is worth to the dollar, it is significantly different. So, I mean, you are seeing that is exactly what's happened to gold. Gold is a great indicator of inflation. And now you see that with natural resources. There's a reason oil and gas, even though it's recently coming down, um, you, you can see that things are truly costing more. Anybody that doesn't think we don't, we, have, we don't have inflation out there is mistaken. There is inflation going on right now when we have the dollar as weak as it is. And you can see that with the natural resources and gold because they are the first ones that correct and will show you where there's concerns for inflation. So you've got to think about these things. Meanwhile, things that are regulated are the last things to, to react. So, so during this price of record gold prices, we should remember that gold is expensive because the dollar is weak and excessively abundant, meaning there's too much money supply out there in a lot of aspects. And furthermore, we shouldn't be adjusting in gold for inflation, but instead should recognize that gold itself is an inflation indicator forecasting and uh, a rise in the general price level of dollar-denominated goods and services. And I think that's the truth. That's what, when people ask me, should I be buying gold, I say, you know, consider looking at gold as um, an inflation hedge. You can go out there if you're worried about inflation and look at gold. I don't buy, I bought gold only for clients who um, had a 401ks that didn't offer like absolute return strategies or hedge funds, um, but they might offer a gold fund like at Fidelity or Vanguard or something like that. So I will throw that in from time to time, but use gold as a tool. I think it's a great tool for predicting inflation as we've seen. and, And I hope some of this has helped you guys out, but Pick your head up. We're going to be okay. We're going to recover from all this craziness that's going on out there in the market because you never know when that market correction, that uptick is going to come where you'll get that 9% in a month or that 26% in the first year of recovery. So hang in there. Diversification is the key. Stay with me. I'm the beacon of light that you need. I'm the host for The Money Guy Show, Brian Preston. I'll talk to you next week. The Money Guy Podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.